When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be reposting some of the interviews I've done with snooker players over the years, adding some context to their careers and giving my impressions of them as both people and players. It'll be interesting, I think, to hear some of them with the knowledge of what came next in their careers. Some good, some maybe not so good. Now, some may see these as, as merely repeats dressed up as new content, to which I say, well, I'm technically on holiday, so it's this or nothing. Uh, genuinely, though, I do think it'll be interesting to go back and hear firsthand from some of the biggest names in the sport talking honestly about themselves and their careers. The first episode of what I'm calling From the Archives will be an interview with Mark Williams, which we'll get to in due course. Now, and of course, Mark has just won the British Open, his 24th ranking title. What a great week that was recently in Leicester, full of drama, close finishes, some controversy, and bottom line, just really good snooker. And it was quite funny, I thought, that some of the most vocal critics of the best of five former ended up thriving in the event. Elliot Slesser reached the semi-finals. Gary Wilson was a finalist. They'd both been critical beforehand, but they both came away considerably richer. Maybe there's a lesson there somewhere. Early on in the week, Alan McManus wrote a coruscating piece on his blog, lambasting the moaners. It was terrific stuff from Alan. And he made the point that so many players seem to think they will thrive in the longer frame tournaments. To which the obvious question is, so why don't they then? The fact is, in the last year, we've had the following formats. Best of one, best of three, best of five, best of seven, best of nine, best of 11, best of 19. In all of them, invariably the same people win. Why? Because they are the best players. Simple as that. Personally, I think it's great to have such variety. The British Open delivered really good viewing figures for ITV4. I enjoyed the week thoroughly, and I hope the event is back on next year. Sadly, the Turkish Masters, of course, has been postponed from its September slot. So there isn't another tournament until the Northern Ireland Open in October. The qualifiers were last week, dragged out, it must be said, over five days, but they didn't exactly get the juices flowing, not least because in Europe they could only be watched on betting sites. Will Snooker Tour make money from streaming? So it seems to me that in the absence of tournaments, they could make more of a production of the qualifiers, commentary, interviews, draw graphics and so on. Otherwise it just feels like wallpaper with no context. Take a look at what Matchroom do with the Championship League. That, uh, to me anyway, should be the model. Anyway, to business. We've had a lot of new listeners over the lockdown period and they won't all have delved back and listened to previous episodes. The interview you're about to hear with Mark Williams was conducted initially in January 2016. Now, that in itself is interesting because this was about 18 months before the beginning of his renaissance, which saw him become world champion for a third time in 2018. But, of course, he was already an all-time great by this point, a hallowed member of the class of 92, alongside his celebrated contemporaries Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins. Firstly, a word about this interview. As you'll hear at the start, Mark isn't particularly big on doing interviews. He prefers to express himself directly through playing or, of course, on social media. But he agreed to do it. No problem, he said. You just have to do something for me first. He said, you have to eat a piece of my chocolate. Well, I thought, <laughs> if that's all I have to do, then I'm on easy street. But, of course... Mark being Mark, it wasn't that straightforward. The chocolate was in fact laced with chilli powder. His wife Joanne had bought it in for Christmas. I ate it, my mouth burned like fire, and when he stopped laughing, 
we got on with the interview. It was interesting to get him in such a relaxed mood because what you're about to hear is very much Mark being himself. I started working on the professional snooker tour in the mid to late 1990s, just after Mark had emerged as a top player. And what I really admire about him is that he's utterly his own man. You'll hear in the interview how he was toughened up at a young age playing snooker against adults who didn't treat him with kid gloves. It created, I think, a hard shell around him which nobody can ever penetrate. He's genuinely laid back, but that's also part of his shtick. It's part of his character. You can't rattle him and you can't get under his skin. He doesn't attempt a false level of sophistication and he hasn't forgotten where he's from. Quite rightly, he's proud of it. One of the first times I met him, he made me laugh in an unexpected way. There used to be an American talk show host called Jenny Jones. And one afternoon, Mark downed a glass of Coke in the press room and belched her name with some force. I don't know why. I also don't really know why I found it so funny then and now. But it told me all I needed to know about Mark Williams, that he's unpretentious, a working class boy, made good, who is determined to just enjoy life. I remember a journalist interviewing him once and asking what motivated him. Mark said, the money. And this is the sort of thing that gets frowned upon when people just come out and admit something like that. But it makes perfect sense. He grew up in a poor area. His father was a miner at the time that that industry was heading into decline. So of course he wants money. He wants a life that didn't look possible, that the structures of our society deemed was out of his reach. Towards the end of the 1990s, Mark became a regular winner and always seemed to be there at the last weekend of most events. For a while, he went ahead of both Sullivan and Higgins and became the best player in the game. Now, the Triple Crown has, of course, become ubiquitous in recent years, but 20 years ago, it wasn't really a thing. Ironic, really, as Williams completed it in the same season, winning the UK Championship, Masters and World Championship during the 2002-03 campaign. Nowadays, that will be celebrated much more, but it was still a fine achievement then, and, of course, he extended it by winning the LG Cup at the start of the following season to complete what we called, in the press room, the BBC Grand Slam. That wasn't really a thing until he did it, but then again, the Triple Crown wasn't really a thing either. It did underline, though, just what a top player had become, and he, at the time, was the dominant player in the game without any question. At one point, Mark won his first match in 48 successive ranking events. We members of the media were going to get him a cake to celebrate getting to 50 matches, but yes, it's that man, Fergal O'Brien, ruined things by beating him in the first round of the UK Championship. And after that, Williams declined a little. Possibly some of the hunger had gone. He had management issues as well. Since the interview, though, he has, of course, roared back to the top of the game, and good on him. I promise you, of all the players I've met, he's one of the friendliest, despite any persona he puts across, which may give you the opposite impression. Most players, indeed most people, like to present their best features to the world. Conversely, Mark, I think, likes to give the impression that he's a bit aloof, but this is not in any way true. When we were both much younger, he'd spend a lot of time in the press room chatting with journalists he regarded as friends and who he trusted. That's how it should be, but it isn't always how it is. To me, more than any other player I've encountered in a quarter of a century just about on the snooker tour, Mark Mark Williams is a genuine people's champion. What you see with him is what you get. He's just himself, a rather cheeky lad from the valleys who turned out to be really good at snooker. Really good at snooker. And this is him talking about his career in his own words, typically unfiltered, unaffected and not bothered one way or the other, whether anyone likes it or not. Long may he continue to excite us on and off the snooker table. He really is a one-off. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. My guest this week is Mark Williams, twice world champion, winner of many tournaments, and most importantly, of course, Twitter legend. Mark, I know you're not a great fan of interviews, so thanks for doing this. Um, Anything for you, Dave. Well, thank you. I always start asking people how they got into snooker, so what was your introduction? 
Oh God, um, I, I first remember it. I think it was my father playing in a in a tournament in a in the institute. It was just like a Christmas thing they had, and it was for all the miners uh, that used to get together. And I just used to watch that and uh, just got into it. It was on the TV then. I think it was Pop Black or something. Like that. I was on, and uh, I just I don't know why, but I just loved watching it. And then I think my mother and father bought me a six foot table. Which uh, from there on, that, that was it. I was just playing it as much as I can, really. Mm. But you also did a bit of boxing, didn't you, when you were a kid? Yeah, I was doing I was doing boxing probably uh, the same time as snooker, probably uh, even a bit more. Um, you know, I, I had about I think there was about sixteen fights actually. Mm. Um, I was the only a junior little one, and and uh, I, I won them all, didn't lose one. Uh, but I always remember the the last fight they had was. My opponent never turned up, and there was another fellow's opponent didn't turn up, and they come and asked me, and we decided to get in with each other, and just like a like an exhibition kind of thing, and he was probably about a stone and a half, two stone heavier than me, but yeah. it was only a little exhibition thing, and uh, my God, every time he jabbed me, punched me, it was like someone hit, hit me with a brick, and uh, you know, I woke up with uh, two black eyes, I think it was, cut severe, and I thought... Oof, I don't know if this is for me, and that's the last time I was I was in a ring. Then, thank God. But you were in an area in Wales where obviously the, the junior snooker scene was quite thriving, wasn't it? So you had a lot of competition. How how quickly did you improve? Um, I, I improved quite quick because I, I played in a in a, the Emporium Club in Bargood where there was quite the time there was probably ten to twelve people practicing here, and everyone was a one four seven breaker. Mm. And you know, I used to get absolutely bashed up by everybody, especially. Uh, you know, Ian Sargent used to give me some bashings, Paul Dawkins, Richard Hodges, all them kind of people, and he was just bashing me up day in, day out, but I kept going back every day and used to wind me up like you wouldn't believe. I mean, you probably couldn't wind anyone up like they used to back then. He'd be classed as bullying now. But, uh, <laughs> well, you do your best in fairness, but, you know. Well, yeah, that, that's how I brought that. I mean, you know, if you'd done stuff like that now, people would go off crying saying, oh, are you picking on me or something? But, you know, it, it toughened me up. And, yeah. And you know, eventually, you know, I started taking frames, getting closer, getting closer, and eventually, the time I was probably fourteen, fifteen, I was, I was beating them all. Mm. And it was funny because when I used to beat them all, they, they didn't want to play me then. It was only to be fake, uh, Sarge that kept playing me, kept playing me, and he was the, he was the hardest one to beat. And once I did beat him a few times, I used to bash him up all the time then. But he was the only one that kept coming back, mm. wanted to play me. But you know, once you're playing around players like that, it was. One four seven break as I mean you both get on. We used we used to play in the Romney Valley League one frame singles. We had seven players on our side, five play, and seven of us were one four seven breakers. Mm. And you know we was winning the league, you know, with ease all the time. But mm. you know it, it was playing with people like that it definitely helped me improve a lot quicker than I would have. So you turned pro when you were seventeen. What was that like? Did you did you feel you were ready? Because obviously in, that, in those days it was open. You just sort of um, paid your money, didn't you? And well, well, it, it was funny because I was winning the junior tournaments in in the Welsh and I was winning all the under sixteens and stuff. And and I was seventeen. And at the, at the time they made the Welsh junior tournaments sixteen and under, and the Welsh seniors tournaments eighteen and over. Hmm. So I couldn't play anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice, isn't it? <laughs> nice of them. And. Uh, I couldn't play anything. I couldn't play in under 16s and obviously over 18s. I, I didn't really have much chance, choice but the turn pro. I mean, if I could have played in one of them, I don't know whether or not I would have done or not. But you know, my manager at the time, Clive Coulthard, who really took me under his wing since I was 12, decided to turn me pro then. 
and uh, obviously it was a good move, mm. but I didn't really have much much choice. What was it like? At, what was it like at the Norbrecht? Because you spent a lot of time there, didn't you? Well, it was. Um, I mean, probably the first year was, I suppose, was brilliant. Really, as a young boy, I was travelling up there for three months. Then me and my mate Sarge, we used to, and the bloke Les Griffiths used to drive us round. Mm. We had a, a one-bedroom flat. Les used to sleep on a sofa, and I used to sleep in a double bed with Sarge. That's mm. how it was for three months. And First year was probably brilliant. I'm young and going up there and yeah. playing players, months, playing every day, 10 matches in a tournament, really, just to get through to the last 32. And it was good, but after you know, 12 months of that or a couple of years, it started getting a, you know, a nightmare. Now, every time someone mentions Blackpool now, I just <laughs> go shiver at the knees. <laughs> so, do you remember the first time you played on TV? What was, what was that match? Can you remember? Um, no, I can't. Can't really. The only really match from back then I can really remember is playing in the last 16. I think it was the Belgium Open playing Darren Morgan, mm. and uh, it was four all. I think it was only 18. I think something like that. It was four all, and I think I had a 60 break in the last, and uh, I was 50 odd up in the decider. No, 60 odd up in the decider, and he's done it anyway. Great dish, potted the black. I'm storming all over this. Silly walk, grabbed my hand. I thought he would try to take it off, and said, <laughs> and said to me, "You made my Christmas now," and walked off. And that's always always stuck in my mind. And I've always always said I'll, I'll get him back for that. And let's just say you haven't beat me since. <laughs> but what was it like playing at the venues? Because obviously the Norbrek, you know, you're a professional, but you're not part of the actual tournaments. They're just qualifiers. Mm. Did you feel comfortable when she started getting to the venues? Not really. It, it took a while because once you're playing up. In Blackpool for like three months, you're playing ten games in one tournament. Then it goes to the next tournament, and you go right the way through. And then you go back to the first tournament if you qualified. Then the seeds come in, and I was beating the seeds in Blackpool. When I was getting to the venue, it was totally different. You know, the lighting was different. There was a lot of crowd there. There was no crowd in Blackpool unless you went for all. It was decided with all the other players. You used yeah. to vulture in then and, <laughs> and watch and see who get beat. But once you got the venue, there was a lot of people there. The lights are totally different then. It did take me a while to adjust to all that. Mm. Uh, it was totally different uh, playing in Blackpool. You were sort of on people's radar as a, as a rising star, but until you win a tournament, no one's quite sure you know, whether you are the real, de- real deal or not. You did win your home event, didn't you, the Welsh Open 96. That was your first ranking event. What, what are your memories of that? Uh, my memories was, uh, you know, obviously, I remember a couple of victories going through. was uh, beating John Parrott in the final. as my first mm. final, and... Uh, I think I won 9-3, so it wasn't really too much pressure on me. In the semis, I think I won 6-1. The only reason I know this is because I got where I practice. I've got the, the actual tournament right. with everyone who played in it mm. in a frame by my centre table in the club. So uh, I won it quite easy, the final, which was brilliant for my first one. And, you know, and I'm not sure if I beat Willie Thorne along the way. And, yeah, he always said, you know, you'll never win another tournament. And... I'll be the only one he wins, and I think because because your, your highest break was it was something like seventy six, and, and and but of course it's not just about that, is it? It's about winning the close frames. It's about actually being able to do it under pressure and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah they, they say my my highest break was only seventy, which it was. I mean, you know, I probably, all joke aside, I probably played safe on seventy and eighty mm-hmm. more times than people have had centuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, if if I carried on and wanted to make centuries, I probably be up around the 600 mark if I wanted but they never really interested me as no. soon as I get past 60, 70 
Ness is a really big break on. I'm not really bothered. I'd rather just get on with the next frame. And uh, where they say when he knocked his seventies in, it, you know, they could well easily be hundreds, but just not really interested. I've never really been interested in them. Mm. Um, some people are, which is fine, but I've never, never been. So you never see me, you know, knocking in hundreds, two or three hundreds, and a best of nine because. Mm. Very rarely I'll be going for them. When you won that Welsh Open, did you think, oh, I've, I've arrived now, I've made it, or did you think, well, you know, it's only one tournament, I've got to go and try and win the next one and the next one? Well, I, I, just, I just thought, well, I couldn't believe it really. I mean, you know, it was the, I can't remember how old it was now, 20, 21 or something, mm. isn't it? I, yeah. You know, I've been playing the Blackpool for a few years to qualify. Eventually, I got to the final, like I said, beat Parrot, and just couldn't believe it really. It was like, only dreamed about. Uh, Winning any tournament really, so when it actually came true, it was, you know, give me a, a lot of belief. Thinking, well, if I win one, surely I can, I'm good enough to win another one, uh, and, and that's the way, way I felt really. Even after winning it, probably the day after, you know, was probably forgotten really. I went back, mm. and, and that was the end of it. Well, you did carry on winning in, in the next couple of years, and it takes us to the, the Masters, 1998. The Wembley Conference Centre, of course, has since been knocked down, but it was a huge uh, venue, raucous crowd in, in London. Big tournament, you're nine each with Stephen Hendry on a respot. How are you feeling? Um, well, you, you said I can't swear, didn't you? So <laughs> yeah, I'd rather you didn't. I'll, I'll but... have to put it that um, I was bricking it. Yeah. There's, no, there's no doubt about it. When Once the respot uh, came and we tossed up, and then I had to play my first shot, like, honestly, it's probably the only time I've ever felt my knees shaking mm. on every shot. Only the respot in black, really, was just the tension was just. Well, it was unbelievable. I mean, I had a couple of dings at it I thought was in the double and it didn't go in and I made it more tense and nervous, but it's without doubt probably the nervous I've ever been in mm. a soccer match. I was absolutely cacking it. <laughs> I was, it was absolutely breaking it. And of course, a fantastic win, fantastic finish, but you had to wait a bit to get the money because they sent the cheque to a different Mark Williams, some guy in London. Yeah, they, uh, they sent, I think they sent about three or four of my cheques mm. to him and, uh, you know, I used to fall up saying, where's the money? And, and we said, oh, you've sent it, you've had it, it's in your bank. And like, no, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. Yeah, we've sent it weeks ago. I said, look, I haven't got it. And then I realised then they've sent it to a, a different Mark Williams. I think that's the, the reason he started putting my G in the, yeah. in the middle. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm sure with a one check, they put Mark J. Williams and still send it to him. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> He's, yeah, there's a, there's a guy actually who's changed his name to Ronnie O'Sullivan for that very reason. But anyway, but anyway, you won the Masters. You, you went on. You won the UK Championship, and then 2000, you, you arrived at the World Championship. I guess as one of the favourites because you, you were in a lot of finals. You know, you had a great run. Yeah. You were winning tournaments. You always seemed to be in finals, semi-finals. Did can you remember thinking, you know, this is my championship, or, or was it just like another tournament? Um, well, I was just starting to get into a rhythm. Really, I was starting to win a lot of matches, uh, build up a lot of confidence, and. You know, I, you know. I suppose you could say there was, there was times that people would, may have been one or two nil down before they actually got out there. Yeah. I was playing quite well some some of the times, and uh, the more matches you win, it just grows in confidence. And and uh, you know, I was just enjoying it. I was young, I was winning matches. Obviously, winning prize money as well. It was just. It was unbelievable, really. Mm. But you looked out, didn't you? Semi-finals against John Higgins, you were down 14-10, I think, going into the last mm. session, and he was, you know, obviously was expected to win because he was in front and he was a, he was a champion himself. What are your memories of that? I, I, it, it was an incredible final session. I think he won one frame. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, I, I can't remember much about it, but I remember John doing some kind of interview somewhere, and he said, 
he said I got into his head or something. I, I, I wouldn't shake his hand at the start, at the yeah, start like that, which yeah. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Well, I think he said you you forgot. I mean, I don't think he was suggesting you know you did it deliberately. Oh, just I, kind of and I just had yeah. no recollection. When I when I heard, I thought, well, I can't remember doing that. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if he if he thinks I did, obviously I've done it. But it was if I did, it was never to get into anyone's head. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know. If, if it did get into his head the next time I'm there, I'm not going to shake his hand again. <laughs> just going to walk straight past him. <laughs> was it special to play Matthew in the final? Obviously, you know, you're sort of a fellow Welshman, friend of yours. Was it was that sort of just an occasion? Um, yeah, it was. Obviously, if I remember when we came in, he was playing, surely he was playing the, the Welsh national anthem mm. as we came in, and there was Welsh flags flying, and it was, it was just a brilliant occasion. And, you know, it, it, it could have gone either way. He took a massive lead on me. Mm. Um, can't really remember much about pulling it back, but. Uh, once they got right to the very end and all the pressure come on, I, I just seemed to free up and relax. And mm. I'm lucky, really. I've never been one to suffer with that many nerves, mm. uh, very rarely. And I, I can, you know, I used to be able to play quite good under pressure. Mm. But now you're world champion. What's that like? In the sort of moments afterwards, did it sink in immediately? Um, yeah, I, I was, you know, I was I was world champion. I think went to the after party. And uh, I was there, I don't know, not long hour, the pint of milk went back to the hotel mm. and, and, and went home and I think it was a bit surreal to be honest and I didn't really celebrate probably till, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or two later mm. where I think they took me, I took the cup up then, down my local town and come, had a few drinks, a lot of drinks really, but <laughs> drunk, got drunk and never forget, woke up and lost a trophy, couldn't remember where, where I put it, nothing. Vanished, and uh, I, f- I think I phoned Will snuck it up. There was panicking. I phoned up. I think phoned the police station. <laughs> hey, see if anything went in, Nothing. And uh, I'm just panicking all day, all day, thinking I'm gonna have to pay for this. And then my next door neighbour knocked my door uh, with a trophy, and I said, "Oh God, where are you get that from?" And he said, "I woke up for work five o'clock in the morning. And it was just on the floor outside in the garden." <laughs> he picked it up, put it in a car, took it to work with him. But uh, I wish he knocked me about that last six, so I didn't have to panic. It should be said, this was the trophy that Joe Davis bought in 1927. It's not just any old trophy, this is the World Championship trophy. That was it, yeah. <laughs> so, now you're the World Champion, of course, it means there's more sort of a call on your time, media suddenly want to talk to you and so on. How do you find that? Because, uh, as I said at the start, I don't think doing interviews is necessarily how you sort of enjoy spending your time. Uh, no, I, I, to be honest, I don't really like doing any interviews, to be honest. I never really have... Um, and to be honest, I'm only doing this one because as you, if it was half of the other ones, I would have told them to bug it off. Because <laughs> I'd rather just not do one, really, and just yeah. plod along. Because half, you know, half the ones I've re- realised growing up that you can, you can do an interview with them, and you do it, and then when it comes out, it's totally nothing like what you've said to them. Mm. You, you just twist it all around, all of a sudden you think they've done an interview for them, and then all of a sudden you read it and you look a bit stupid because the things you're saying, and you, you haven't said it like that, and so... I just rather not do any really. But, but also, you, you've never really sort of tried to project an image, have you? You you are yourself. You're happy with yourself. You don't try and be anything else. No, no. I, I'm I'm just. Well, I think I'm just the same as I was when I was mm. eighteen, nineteen. I'm saying, no, I have a good laugh. I'm like taking a um, Mickey of people. Mickey is the best word. Like taking the Mickey of people, and you know, I love having the Mickey taken out myself as well. Whoever, you know. Everyone has tried to take the mickey out of me and wind me up, and you, know, you can ask anyone, no one's succeeded yet, because mm. you can say whatever you want to me, it doesn't matter anything you want, and 
it doesn't bother me. It goes right over the top, top of my head, and I'll probably come back with something that day when we'll be the ones uh, biked in in the end. Well, you went on winning, you kept on winning tournaments, and uh, the 2002 3 season, you won the Triple Crown, you won the UK, the Masters, the World Championship. I mean, it kind of doesn't get much better than that, does it? Was it did, you, did you feel invincible? I mean, it was. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, I did honestly feel every tournament I was, I was going to play in at that time. Uh, you know, I just felt I was almost guaranteed to get to at least the semis. It was just a feeling I had, and wherever I played, it was just, you know, big breaks. Everything it was just, uh, just in myself. Thought well, I'm going to get to the, you know, the semis or the final. Probably Higgins or Sullivan, mm. and, and uh, you know, that'd be the toughest game. And you know, it was working like after a while. Uh, you know, people talk about a lot of the triple crown, which is good. But they also miss. You know, they don't count it, but I counted. So I had. Uh, I think it was the Grand Prix trophy at the same time as well. So I had all the four yeah. BBCs, but because the one wasn't in the same year, or the I think it was the LG Cup, wasn't the it? LG Cup, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it was the Grand Prix. Yeah, the LG might have been the LG Cup. It's that, yeah, it's that event. Yeah. But I had that one as well. But no one seems to mention that because mm. it wasn't in the same calendar, or whatever. But I actually you had held the four of them at the same four time. Four at the yeah. same time, yeah, yeah. but. You know, it never gets mentioned, even not if he says on the same calendar you I still held the four at the same time, which I'm not sure how many others have done that. I guess the problem though, Mark, is that from that sort of position the only way's down, isn't it? And and you did have like a, a couple of little slumps and at one point you sort of lost your top sixteen place. What was that like, having been, as you say, regular in finals, winning trophies and all of a sudden um, you're sort of going to I think Prestatic yeah, to qualify? Yeah, it was difficult. I went down to forty seven in the world at one stage and you know, I was turning up I was turning up to tournament just couldn't pot a ball really and you know my, to be honest my mind wasn't my mind wasn't uh, totally on it to be honest I just left my manager my management company at the time I won't even credit with naming them and uh, you know I that's something I should have done 20 years ago you know I should never have, my own fault I should never have been there but uh, you know, that was the main reason I dropped on the rankings and it took me a while to sort uh, a lot of stuff I was happening off the table, which I'm not going to go into now. I won the one, I will do one day when you want to write my book for me. You'll have a, okay. you'll have a field day. But you got my number. Yeah, yeah but uh, <laughs> is I can't go into it now. But you know that was the reason my head was, you know, up my, my ass. You can put that in. And for a few years, and I, you know, I was losing. I just didn't really care because I had I had more, more stuff to worry about off the table than actually playing. And you know, I'm still not like even now. I'm still not, you know, absolutely perfect, but I'm in a hell of a better position now than I was. Mm. Uh, so and and it's not it's improving because you know I'm practicing, my head's back on it more now, and uh, it's, it's getting a lot better. Mm. One thing you have always enjoyed is travelling. You know, some players get on a plane and they don't stop moaning until they get home again. But you, yeah. you always seem to certainly in your earlier days, you always seem to just enjoy going away. Took some mates with you, enjoyed yeah. it, and had a very good record <laughs> overseas. Won a lot of tournaments. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I laugh at people, that, you know. Time they fly out, they can't wait to get back. Why go? What's the point going? You've got no chance. I mean, at the end of the day, I've just been one of the ones. If I'm going to China, could be there for ten days. Oh, that that's life. I'll see everyone else when I come home. You know, it's a, it's a job. But I do get a little bit now when I go up there after about five or six days. You know, I do think like because they have PTCs on the back of Thomas as well, and I enter the PTCs and I sat there thinking, oh, I shouldn't have entered. I should have gone home. Uh, you know, it's getting a lot harder because I've got kids and everything yeah. now. But you know, if I'm not going to go to a big tournament the way, and as soon as I arrive, I look after the other players. Oh, I can't wait to get home. I mean, you get home when you get home. I mean, mm. if I lose, 
if I lose, the first thing I'll do is get home, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I don't even think about coming home until I lose. Mm. Otherwise, there's no point going. You've lost before you start. Mm. And I, I think that's probably why I have got a good record overseas. I won a lot of tournaments. Do, do, does losing hurt you, Mark? Because you've always seemed to me to take it sort of in your stride. I've never really seen not you really. really upset, you know, really angry. Not really. Um, you know, I've always said the worst thing can happen is I lose. That's it. That is the, the worst thing can happen. And I've always had that attitude. And, you know, you could pick on, you pick on your, your hand, your one hand, uh, the amount of times I've been really, uh, really upset about losing. Uh, Nothing really comes to my mind, really. The only one I can think of at this moment in time is when Ali Carter beat me 9 8, I think, in the. I think it was the UK or something, and I was in and I had a massive kick on the last red to win 9 8, I missed it. And, you know, I was a bit cheesed off for that one, but very rare I get mm. down on myself. Not really. I mean, you can watch me play. If I win a close match or lose a close match, you can see me walking off. You, you'll never tell if I won or lost by. See me walk out or talk to me, unless you ask me the score, because mm. I don't really show it that much. Mm. But after you won the, the the second world title, 2003, as I say, you were sort of you were very much the world number one lead, won everything. Did you, in your own mind, think, well, I'm going to carry on winning this, or maybe get three or four overs? Did you think of it like that? Uh, I think after the second one, I, well, it's so easy to take your foot off the gas. You know, mm. you're winning a lot of tournaments, and even when you're losing, you still get into quarter semis, finals, and stuff like that, and. You know, I probably took my foot off the gas by not realising it. And you know, when when your form does start to slip, it's very difficult to stop yourself sliding down the rankings. Which I found out a couple of times. I've gone, you know, down to twenty odd again, and it was hard to stop that slide. And you know, I know how to stop the slide, but it's, it's very difficult and to get yourself motivated to get back in the club, mm. practice as much as you need to to get back up the, the rankings. How how far off now do you think you are? You're sort of you're the best game that you were at maybe ten years ago. Oh, no win here. Mm. Yeah, I can't even can't even compare it to be honest. Uh, you know, I I can I've accepted now. I can go out there and I can I can miss or absolutely anything. Some of the easiest balls, you know, a, a local club player couldn't miss down a club. I I can miss it, and I've accepted that now. And and when I do miss them, as a few years ago, I was get, I was getting annoyed and frustrated but now it don't even bother me anymore I'll go back to my chair sit down and think well I knew I was going to miss something easy sooner mm. or later and just and it's gone again which used to happen years ago 10 years ago if I miss something easy be forgotten about and mm. it's happening now I, I just totally uh, not worry about it anymore and, mm. and honestly God, I go out there and if I win brilliant if I get beat I can honestly save my hand and my heart I do not give a monkey's Okay. People like me always compare your career to Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins because obviously you all came up together, same age, turned pro at the same time. Uh, do you compare yourself to other players? Do you think, oh, he's you know he's won this amount, I've won this amount, or is it just you're happy with what you've done in your own sort of career? Um, yeah, if, if I was to look back on it, I'd be more than happy with what I'd done. You know, I mean, uh, there's no getting away from it. I think if I won about the same time or bumped into O'Sullivan as many times as I did, I think. Probably would have won at least another two world titles, and you know, obviously a few other tournaments as well along the way. Um, but you know, I, I've come through uh, in an era which, which I probably think is two of the best players there ever to play. And you know, you're never going to get anyone better than Rob Sullivan. And I mean, 
you can't compare the, the standard at the top now to what it was back then with them mm. two playing. And obviously had Endry as well, with Steve Lee, with so many, Paul and Matthew Stevens. But uh, I mean, the top four back then was I think me, Endry, Higgins, and O'Sullivan. And you know, they were hard sweet to try and nick Thomas off. So I nicked a few tournaments, you know, while they were still all there playing mm. at their best. Maybe Endry just gone past there, but O'Sullivan and Higgins, you, I mean, they're unbelievable. I mean, he's still two of the best players in the world now, and they, mm. they're bloody 40. Hmm. And uh, people, would, I think, would be interested. You know, are you friends, the three of you? Because you always sort of bracketed together. But uh, I mean, at um, the end of the day, you're still rivals on the table, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, friends as, as in like not really. Hmm. You know, I mean, I speak to. Uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up with John uh, and stuff like that. You know, there's Ronnie that I got every credit for him, and and obviously he's a, on the table. He's unbelievable, but. Would I go for a drink with him off the table? Would I, hell? <laughs> but one man you are friends with is Stephen Hendry, of course. And, I mean, he, throughout his career, he sort of kept himself to himself, didn't he? But I think you, in a way, brought him, brought him out of his shell a bit because you, you were his, or still are his good friend. Yeah, he's, I, he's probably the, the one I uh, was always, because we was managed with the same company and we was always flying together. And, and uh, I don't know why, we just get on, really. We mm. was just, you know, he likes a good wind-up and a good laugh. You know, we... He may come across as a bit miserable, and which he is probably miserable, really. He's just, <laughs> I can make him smile now and again, you know, but uh, he is quite a miserable kid. But uh, we've always had a good laugh, and, uh, you know, he normally tries to keep yourself to yourself, really, at tournaments. Um, but, uh, you know, every time I see him, uh, you know, I won't let him have any peace to himself. I'll go over there and straight, get straight on him, wind him up about something, no matter what it is. Mm. And we've just always gone on. But now, of course, you have Twitter as well, because you, how you yeah. are on Twitter is how you've been on the circuit the last 20 years, basically, <laughs> is the, sort of the constant joking around. I mean, you obviously enjoy your time on, on there. Yeah, I love it, but it's getting me into trouble. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, oh, I've, I've said a couple of things on there which I don't think was as bad as people made out and got heavily fined for it. Uh, I've got a, a few letters warning saying I can't do this, I can't say that, I can't say that, but... Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much. What you get on Twitter is pretty, pretty much how I am. Yeah. As far as I can be, uh, going by the guidelines of World Snooker. Really, mm. I mean, uh, if if the only thing I, I don't put on it, I'm not up to swear and stuff like that, and maybe a bit, a bit controversial and stuff like that. But most of it's you you see me on there is is what I am in real life, really. Yeah. Which is what they say they want. They say they want the players to. Reject the personalities, but do you do you, do you regret what you said about the crucible that time? Um, yeah, I only regret it because it cost me four grand. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if I'd known it was going to cause that much of a stir, I would, I would never have said it, obviously. Yeah. But you know, I, I never said it uh, being derogatory to the crucible or anything mm. like that. You know, I just I said it sort of a bit of a laugh, really, mm. and, a, and a joke, but obviously. I found out it wasn't a laugh or joke, and four grand later, I'm thinking, why did I say that for? But you know, I, do you think I, d I said something worth a four grand fine? And if come on, I don't think it was worth four thousand. I think the problem is everyone's sense of humour is different, isn't it? And some people would have seen it for what it was. It's just Mark being Mark. Other people think, oh, you know, it's the Crucible. You can't, you can't say that. Um, you, did, you didn't actually swear. You actually, we won't say what you what you saw. Yeah, yeah. But the, but there were some asterisks in there. I think I think it was possibly the timing that, that counted against you because it was right oh, before really? the World Championship. It was um, only the day before. Yeah. Well, yeah, the day before. But uh, 
But you're, you're, you're there to stay on Twitter, are you? You're not, you're not sort of, you haven't considered sort of backing away from it? No, it? no. no I, I mean, like I said, after, since that one, that's the only time I've really got into trouble and I've been, uh, you know, quite careful on it. Still, you know, everyone who tweets me or, or whatever, I, I do get some idiots on their mm. mind, which, uh, which I love. They come on and abuse <laughs> me, saying this, that and the other, swearing and... You know, give me fifteen minutes back, and I'm abusing them, and they they delete their account. Then and they're the ones trying to wind me up, mm. and I end up making them delete their account or blocking me, which I find that brilliant. You know, they come on trying to have a go at me, mm. I go back, and then they block me. Great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're forty now, Mark. You're the world seniors champion, as as we record this. What, you know, your career's not over. You're in the, still in the top sixteen. You're still competing. But do you have sort of future ambitions in terms of what you want to still want to achieve? Um, I'd, obviously, I'd, I'd love to win another world title. Realistically, is it's not going to happen. But that would be my my one one dream. I mean, if I can win any other tournament now, ranking tournament, it'd be you know a bonus for me. Really, uh, I've still got the game to do some damage and beat you know good runs and beat anyone. Really, I'm still good enough to beat anyone, but I'm not consistent enough as I used to be. And you know, my long game is quite poor to be honest. But you know, I still got the determination and I try 100% wherever I play. And uh, you know I'll keep, I'll keep going. It's, uh, it's a bit unfair calling me the world seniors champion. Really, I, just, I wasn't even old enough to be in it. No, but you did win it. Well, <laughs> in fairness. Yeah, but look who I had to beat. You know, I mean, John Parrott. I mean, he is old, and he? he is a senior. <laughs> well, you're at least you're out now, old enough to defend it. You're now yeah, 14. No. So. I might not even bother turning up this year. <laughs> but it was still nice to win. It was still nice to go there and uh, you know see. People like Joe Johnson and Dennis Taylor come out in their Zimmer frames and <laughs> hit about 300 cushions per frame. No balls going anywhere near the pockets. I mean, I used to watch it before I was in it and I used to just look at it and go, you know, some of these commentators just slag us off and look at these playing by hitting so many cushions. I'd love to be commentating on... You know, if Joe Johnson playing Dennis Taylor, I'd love to commentate on that and get my revenge. I was going to ask you, actually, I mean, commentary, you know, a lot of ex-world champions do end up doing it. Is that something that you think you'd like to do? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, once I do, I think once I do finish, finish playing, I, my personal is I don't want nothing to do with the game whatsoever. Uh-huh. I just want to finish, go away, and, and you'll never see me again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, won't, I won't turn up to any times. That's it, that'll be it. Whether or not that'll happen, I don't know, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, commentary... It's a tough one because if I did try it for a couple of days or if, I don't know, just say you want me to do the Welsh Open for a week or something like that, um, it'd be very hard because I wouldn't want to, you know, all joking aside, I wouldn't want to end up sounding like pe- sounding like people like Joe Johnson and Mike Allen who who played a game when I stand in themselves and, and I'm watching and I swear they accommodate on a different table to what I'm watching sometimes and I'd think, what are they on about? And if I'd done that, I wouldn't want to go down the road of, of coming across like not knowing what I'm talking about, you know. I mean, Stephen Hendry's gone here like a duck to water. He's been unbelievable. Just there's no stories with him. He just says what he what he sees. And and there's a breath of fresh air the other day when I heard I was listening to Ronnie and John Higgins on Eurosport. Mm. In, I think it was the UK, was it? Yeah. And it was it was so refreshing to watch them. And you know, Ronnie he was quite blunt at times, but some of the stuff he was saying was, was really good and you've got to take note when he's saying because he's done everything mm. and he's still playing, well, he's still the best player in the world. So mm. it, was, it was totally different listening to them and uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. I think mm. sat on the sofa while he was doing, it's a lot easier, I think, than actually being in the commentary box. Mm. 
Okay. So if, just to, to wrap up then, I mean, you, you seem very content, Mark, still within yourself. When you look back in your career, you must be more than satisfied with what you've achieved. Oh, yeah, without doubt. I mean, I've never, never thought I would have done not even a third of what, what I have achieved. And, you know, if I look back on it, whatever I Thomas, I have won, whatever I've done, I, you know, in my opinion, I've probably done it of the, the best standard around at the yeah. top, you know, ever. And, you know, that, that gives me you know, good good satisfaction that I've achieved something. Uh, we're probably two of the best, or well, three of the best players ever to live. Mm. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for doing this. And I think the good news is there won't be any fines. I think we got through it without any fines. So, <laughs> I, so. I can make up yeah, no, I'm going pr- to press stop. I want to say thanks to Mark for his company and thanks to everyone for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.